Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Pity City versus the Workplace. Imagine you work for, say, a global furniture company, a big one, one that hauled in around $4 billion last year. And you ask your boss whether bonuses are on the way. And this is how she responds. Don't ask about, what are we going to do if you don't get a bonus? Spend your time and your effort thinking about the $26 million we need and not thinking about what you're going to do if we don't get a bonus. All right? Can I get some commitment for that? I would appreciate that. I had an old boss who said to me one time, you can visit Pity City, but you can't live there. So people, leave Pity City. Let's get it done. That's Andy Owen, the CEO of Miller Knoll, the big furniture company I mentioned. And that's audio from a conference call she had with her employees. Video clips from the meeting went viral, snaring millions of views on Twitter alone. The company said Owen's comments were taken out of context and that she's committed to her team. But in a still newly post-COVID world and workplace, Owen's advice about traveling to Pity City struck a nerve. Of course it would. There are so many tensions still at play in blue-collar and white-collar workplaces. Work from home is a flashpoint. So are wages, obviously. And balancing work and gratification, all in the shadow of a pandemic that took about 7 million lives globally. Joining me to talk about Pity City and more is Sarah Green Carmichael, a columnist and editor for Bloomberg Opinion. Sarah writes and edits with grace and insight, and I guess I'm putting myself in the crosshairs here because I'm also her boss. (laughs) (laughs) Howdy, Sarah. It's so lovely to be here, Tim, with you. (laughs) It's fun. I was looking forward to having a session with you. Okay, let's start with Pity City. In a recent column about the brouhaha around Owen, you asked, do our bosses think we're whiners? I'll say out front, Sarah, that I don't think you are. You also have this pointed observation. Paranoia thrives in the polite inauthenticity that workplaces so often require. The version of Owen portrayed in the video appears to offer confirmation that executives who seem reasonable and gracious in public are secretly fed up with us in private. So, Sarah, unpack that so you and I can talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I think what really struck me about this video was that in the first chunk of the video, Owen seems like almost an ideal CEO. She's sort of like, focus on the future, focus on the things you can control. We will get through this together. This is a difficult time for an office furniture company, obviously, you know, people not going to the office. And then there's this very sudden shift. And I have to confess, I almost wondered, I'm like, am I watching a deep fake? Has this video been edited? Because all of a sudden, she just shifts into this kind of scary boss mode where she's talking very fast and is suddenly sort of seemingly angrily ripping into people. And to me, that really, I guess, spoke to a deep-seated fear I think many employees have, which is that their boss is very good at presenting a professional demeanor, 
a sort of placid demeanor, but that lurking underneath it is this desire to say, get your act together, stop complaining, come back to the office, you know, get your bum in the chair, like this sort of fed up feeling. And I think that it is natural as an employee. I got some pushback on this from readers who said, I don't really care what my boss thinks. I don't have a complex about what powerful people think of me. I think that's a little, some people may truly be free of those judgments. Good for them. Most people, however. Do you have little medals that you send those those people who write to you? <laughs> they, get a, they get a self-esteem trophy. <laughs> but I think that most of us, evidence would show, do care what powerful people think. Most evidence suggests that one of the fun things about having power is that you do not obsess about what less powerful think of you in the same way that when you have less power, you're constantly thinking about, you know, does this person approve of me? Am I meeting expectations? Am I reading too much into this? You know, that's just human nature. So to me, I thought her comments and specifically the way that they came seemingly out of nowhere after a very reasonable presentation, that is probably why they struck such a chord with people. But is this really a new phenomenon or even a COVID phenomenon? You know, I remember as a little kid, like watching the Flintstones. I don't even know if that's still out there for kids to watch. I always thought it was a profoundly weird cartoon for little (laughs) kids because it was about adults and it was about adults living in the Stone Age, dealing with adult problems. But they were anyway pitching it to kids. And, you know, in the show, Fred Flintstone was always paranoid about his boss, Mm. Mr. Slate or whatever his name was. And Fred would come home weary and want a Bronto burger because he had such a bad day at work. Hasn't it always been thus that workers have worried about whether their bosses were power tripping them or lying to them? Yes, I think in some ways it has always been thus. I think what's different now is we are able to see these moments go viral in a way that we wouldn't have before. You know, if this had happened before COVID, this would have been an in-person, all-hands meeting, people in the room might have been shocked. Maybe comments would have been leaked to some media organization. But if you just see a transcript of those remarks, it doesn't hit you the same way as seeing the video. So I think in part, it's actually seeing the video of how these conversations go that's different. And I also think that we are in an economic moment where we are perhaps coming to the end of a 15-year-long economic expansion. And so there's a lot of people in the workplace who have not been through a contraction like this before. And the last three years of COVID are literally a once in a lifetime experience. You know, the U.S. has not, the world has not been through something like this in 100 years. So this is also having, I think, different impacts on the workforce. So this issue about, you know, whether executives seem reasonable and gracious or actually are reasonable and gracious, is there anything any manager can really do that crosses that divide of both paranoia and suspicion And also maybe just outright reality in some cases that no one is going to believe you're as well-intentioned as you say you are. Hmm. I think that, you know, I have asked different sort of experts in workplace trust and leadership some version of this question. And what they have all said to me is that you build trust in having these conversations, not in avoiding them. So often there's an impulse to try to build trust in other ways, right? You go on a corporate retreat, you do trust falls, like whatever, you chit chat before the meeting. But that actually the primary way you can build trust is like over time, being there, being consistent, being the kind of boss who brings these fears out into the open or who's there for someone when they are dealing with an illness or a new baby. And that over time, there is trust that builds up sort of through that. I think that this is 
Also, we could get into like the rise of authenticity in the workplace and vulnerability. There have been a lot of thought leaders kind of calling for more authenticity and vulnerability in the workplace. And some workplaces are very encouraging of sort of bring your whole self to work. That has pros and cons. Like that's not a free lunch. But I do think that, you know, in some ways, those movements are an attempt to bridge the divide between managers and employees. And to keep people from visiting Pity City. Yes. <laughs> is it inevitable that paranoia is just going to hang over any kinds of groups or organizations? People experience it in their relationships. People experience it in their families. Is the workplace just another conglomeration of people moving forward in sometimes specific and often unspecific ways? And they're all worried that either they're not performing well or they're not loved. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has always stayed with me, although it's easier to know it than to enact it, but is bad is stronger than good in psychology, right? So criticism weighs more heavily on people than praise does lift them. People react more strongly when something's taken away than when they get an unexpected bonus. And I think if you are a leader in an organization and you know that, then you know that your criticism will be remembered probably for a long time, but your praise will quickly be, unfortunately, forgotten. So I, I think knowing that, you know, hopefully managers will remember to give praise much more frequently than they give criticism. But yeah, I think human beings, you know, we are a funny species and there's probably paranoia in a lot of our interactions. And actually, you know, what we have to do is figure out ways to manage around that and work through it and not sort of wish it away. Okay. On that note, I want to say, Sarah, I think you're the best. Awesome. Thank you. So <laughs> glad I came on the show. <laughs> you know, your column was so provocative and good that I'm going to read a lot from it. And I wanted to note to our listeners that in the show notes for the podcast, you can find links to this specific column that Sarah and I are speaking about and others that we'll mention in the show as well. So let's examine another observation from your column. <clears throat> and I quote, a degree of employee fear has driven similar moments of managerial candor to the top of most red lists. When J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon says remote work doesn't work and calls managing directors back to the office five days a week, it prompts other workers to wonder if their bosses will follow his example. When a manager is caught on camera saying she's, quote unquote, tired of babying people, it goes viral on TikTok because viewers worry their supervisors, too, think that way. Okay, Sarah, so staying on our theme here, is there too much cracking of the whip by CEOs and managers these days? Um, boy, let me think about that one. I think that there is too much worrying about things that maybe don't matter. I don't think that FaceTime in the office is a good proxy for someone's value as an employee. But it is the proxy that we have always used in a flawed world to measure how committed someone is to their job. And I think in a world of hybrid and remote work, suddenly managers who were used to sort of measuring people by, are they the first one in? Are they the last one out at the end of the day? Now are sort of struggling with that. I think we are seeing more companies install this kind of employee monitoring software, which I just think is awful. And they are measuring the wrong things. You know, you hear stories about people sitting in meetings with their laptops, moving the mouse on their laptop so they get credit for doing work because otherwise the meeting won't count as work because there's no one making any keystrokes. I think that you always get some results in employee behavior in terms of what you're measuring. But if what you're measuring is badge-ins to the office or keystrokes, 
you will miss a whole dimension of human performance. So I think I see too much executive enforcement around these sort of proxy measures and not enough executives talking about what are the things we are really trying to deliver to customers? What is the value we are creating? What is our productivity? You know, how many articles are we publishing? How many chairs are we selling? Like, what is the impact we are having in the world as opposed to our people coming into the office and, you know, just taking attendance, basically? So is going to the office pointless? I don't think it's pointless. And I think in some ways, the trust issues we have now, it is possible that they are exacerbated by remote work. But to me, what is important about the office is that people, when they are in the office, actually interact in some way. There is some benefit to being there. And I think even now when people go into the office, they're kind of doing email from a different location. They're doing Zoom calls from a different location. So I think to get the benefit of the office requires thinking of it differently and requires, you know, thinking of remote work differently, too. So it's not pointless, but it doesn't need five days a week to have a point. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. (laughs) Well, then what about the impact of all of this on these urban cores we love so much? There's commercial office vacancies that are gutting urban downtowns. Public transit is suffering because commuters aren't using those services as much. Small businesses that depend on vibrant urban cores thronging with eager workers, happily going in five days a week, uh Mm -hmm. are all suffering. And do you think that that's just fine? And this is part of an epic transition that a public health crisis forced us to engage with? I think it is really difficult, and I think it is probably inevitable. The way that I see this remote work shift happening is similar to the transition away from CDs and DVDs that we saw, you know, when music and video started streaming. And what you saw in that case was like the CEO of Tower Records and the CEO of Blockbuster Video really trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, and it didn't go in. I mean, there have just been huge, huge changes in retail over the years, enabled by the internet. And it was foolish to think that that would never come for work. You know, work also now happens predominantly online. And for years before COVID, most of what I did in the office was sending emails to people who were sitting right next to me. And it seems like this is the inevitable internetification of our lives. In some ways, the fact that these urban cores are so affected is because of the investments that we have made Over the last 50 years, we didn't invest, especially in America, in public transit systems or affordable housing that made it possible for people to either live near their jobs downtown or to quickly get there. And so now what we see is, yes, people moved out of the cities to live affordably. And then it turned out it was very difficult to get back into those cities. And we didn't put in the investments to change any of that. But we did build amazingly fast Internet. And now that internet is filling the sort of void left behind by our failures to invest in public transit and our failures to fix the housing crisis. And of course, cities themselves are reflections of the specific kinds of economic engines that create them to begin with. So as those economic engines change, the complexion and structure of cities adapts over time, I guess, per the interesting narrative you just laid out, right? Yeah, I think it will shift. I think there will be something that's on the other side of it. It probably will not be pretty to get there. But I do think the transition is inevitable. And mayors who are sort of begging people to do hour-long commutes to come into their cities and send emails from a different building are just whistling past the graveyard or missing the point. 
You know, and in terms of like the business comparisons you were making with Blockbuster, I think an interesting one is Netflix, which made its initial harvest on DVDs. It just announced in its most recent earnings call that it was no longer going to send DVDs to people. But it took a corporate risk by going full bore into streaming when no one else was. And basically said, the world changed, so we are now going to completely adapt even if it's risky. And perhaps that's one of the apt comparisons, too, if you're comparing corporations to workplaces in a post-COVID world. Yes. If I had to give out a sort of a hopeful vision, my hope is that the shift we're seeing will make it more possible for the people who really need to be downtown to live closer to where they have to work. You know, there's a story in the Boston Globe of a woman who cleans office buildings, who spends four hours a day on public transit to get to her job that only lasts for four hours. And sometimes because of the way the Boston train schedules work, you know, she's not getting home till midnight. And I'm hoping that in the future, housing will become more affordable for people who are in a job like that, where they really have to be there because maybe some of those old office buildings will become apartment complexes. I'm hoping that the future is better than the past, of course, but the middle is going to be messy. Well, so on that note of hope, I hope you will hang around with me for a minute because I'm going to take a break so we can hear from one of our sponsors and we will be right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back with Sarah Green Carmichael, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Sarah, we've been talking about the office as both a thing and an idea and a source of paranoia and a source of money for people. And I want to stay on that for a minute and discuss the work from home RTO debate. There's something of a generational divide around this, at least in our company, Bloomberg LP, and other companies that I've spoken to or people I've spoken to who work at other companies, a lot of settled workers, not necessarily older, but more settled in their careers, who have family lives or young families, are happy to work away from the office because they've already had the culture of the company inculcated in within themselves and in their careers, and they've learned about the specific culture that makes a specific company hum if it's a successful company. But younger workers who are less settled in their lives, they're new to the work world, they want to learn about the culture of a company, they've actually missed at times being in a place where they could gather with other people their own age, socialize with them, work with them, learn from mentors in a hands-on way rather than over Zoom. Am I setting up a false divide? And if I'm not, what do you think about it? Yeah, I don't think it's a false divide at all because this is what all the polling shows is that younger workers are more interested in being in the office. They also live in smaller apartments full of roommates. It's, not, it's sort of not an ideal, you know, work from home setup, but that people who maybe have childcare responsibilities or who live further away or who are more settled in their careers, you know, it's less popular with them to go in. That seems absolutely true and accurate. 
In some ways, I think this is why companies have tried to embrace hybrid, not going fully remote, but not, I think, sort of five days a week is that the idea being that we will get people together some of the time. I think part of the challenge is, you know, when I think back to (laughs) years ago when I was a young worker, how I learned things in the office, it was often by being interrupted, interrupting other people, overhearing things, often things that were maybe to some people annoying to overhear, you know, a colleague who's too loud on the phone, for example. I learned so much from eavesdropping on phone calls from people who were too loud on the phone. Like, how do we talk to authors? How do we talk to each other? Like, that's what you pick up from being in the office. And now I think that people have gotten used to working in their very, you know, sometimes very quiet, more controlled environments. Those interruptions are even more irritating to people. Oh, if you have to do a phone call, why wouldn't you just work from home today? It's tricky. I think that we have to figure out some new way of mentoring. Maybe it's less osmosis learning and more hands-on planful mentoring, but there has to be some way to kind of transmit what the older generation knows to younger workers and for the older workers, frankly, to learn from the energy and fresh ideas of younger people. But that doesn't involve just people randomly overhearing stuff in the office. But why should we happily settle to older workers be cramming down this idea of work from home down the throats of younger workers who want some mentoring, want to learn about a corporate culture, actually want to be in the office? Well, all workplaces are compromises, right? There are compromises on space, there are compromises on dress code, there are compromises on professional norms. I think that we have to somehow have a workplace and a company culture that works for working parents, that works for workers closer to retirement, that works for younger workers. This means meeting a bunch of people's needs probably pretty well and no one's needs absolutely perfectly. Unless you're, you know, truly amazing company with great flexible policies, then maybe you can pull it off. You know, one of the other things that's sort of stayed with me throughout the pandemic is the profound class divide that came up around how it affected people, particularly blue-collar versus white-collar workers, but there were many others, racial divides, income divides, suburban versus cities, and on and on and on. But blue-collar workers during COVID didn't have the luxury often of being able to decide to work from home like lawyers and financiers and journalists and others are able to do. They had to show up at the grocery store. They had to show up in the meatpacking plant. They were deemed frontline workers, obviously nurses in hospitals. And they, they've never had this opportunity to just randomly decide that the world of work has changed and therefore their workplace must follow suit. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. It's complicated. I don't want to be overly reductionist because, you know, there are some very highly paid workers who have to go in. A brain surgeon cannot do it over Zoom, you know, and there are some very low paid workers who could work from home like a call center worker. Right. So it doesn't map perfectly onto earning power. But undoubtedly, I think professionals in our society have always had more power in terms of setting their own schedules, in terms of determining their own working conditions. I think that one area where I really see the sort of vibe shift changing very quickly is around what motivates professional workers. So I think for the last 15 years, especially, but for longer than that, but especially over the last 15 years, there's been this real drive to hire people who are innately very motivated. There's this idea that talent and commitment sort of rise together. 
we want to hire, this is what I sort of hear from the people who work in talent management is like, you hire really committed people, you hire entrepreneurial people, you hire highly intrinsically motivated people. And then the manager's job is just get out of their way, let them do what they do best, maybe remove some obstacles from their path. And these employees will work long hours, they will give 110%, they will contribute to an ownership culture. You know, we're told that company culture eats strategy for breakfast. This is all seen as essential. And I think that's a very different kind of employment contract than you have with a blue collar worker where there is maybe an hourly wage, but you're also not expected to work when you're not working. In a blue collar job, there's not the same, I think, expectation that you're checking your email at all hours of the day and night or that you are working weekends without at least making a little bit more money or making overtime. And in salaried jobs, it's, I think, very much the expectation now among these professional level jobs that you would maybe give a little extra time in the weekend if you had to, or in the evening if a client you know, needed it. So I, I do see this divide coming up between these two types of jobs. It goes far beyond remote work and goes to the core, I think, of how people are incentivized and motivated. All right. Well, continuing to speak about divides, you have a very compelling pair of thoughts at the end of your column, and I'd like to explore each of them. So here's the first. In the context of our famous Pity City CEO, Andy Owen, you think about her situation first and foremost as a female CEO, and you have this insightful thought. Female CEOs in particular face pressure to hide their frustration with employees behind a mask of empathy. Decades of research has shown that women leaders are expected to exude warmth in a way their male peers aren't. At the same time, women can't seem, quote, too nice, unquote, or they will be dismissed as incompetent. It's a double bind that takes enormous skill to navigate. So talk about that phenomenon generally before we talk about Andy Owens specifically. Sure. So in the literature on female leaders, a couple of things are true. One is that they, in survey after survey, are generally rated as better performers than male leaders. So what this says to me is not that women are innately better leaders, but that it is harder to advance as a woman in leadership so that only the very most qualified women are getting through. The second thing that has been proven over and over again is this, what they call the warmth competence trade-off, where as a woman, you need to be seen as warm. But if you're seen as too warm or too nice, then you're sort of easy to dismiss as a cream puff. If you lead with competence and you lead with your smarts and your competitiveness, you are inevitably seen as a something that rhymes with witch. And you can't, <laughs> you sort of have to be both at the same time, but our stereotypes about women make it very difficult to actually telegraph both at the same time. And you see Owen as possibly trapped by that kind of dichotomy. You note that she actually tried to empathize with employees in early parts of the video call with her team that didn't go viral. And if you sit through the entire video, there's this sudden shift in tone at the end, and we get all of that pity city stuff. And you conclude your column this way. It isn't the empathetic, quote, version of Owen viewers see in the video's conclusion, where the sudden revelation of a tougher, more judgmental boss comes as a shock. To an employee, it's alarming. But to an executive, perhaps the emotion it stirs is envy. Wow. Let's talk about that one. Did you feel envious, Tim? Do you want to yell at us? <laughs> no, I honestly, I'm always disturbed when these videos and audios go around of these people saying what I consider to be absolutely bonkers, insensitive things. 
to employees who are looking for clarity Mm. and support. And I think sometimes you have to speak candidly to employees who aren't performing. I think that's good for both sides in that equation. But you can do that in an empathetic way that is also tough-minded and clear. But to sort of randomly engage in strange histrionics that evoke journeys to the twilight zone because you're asking basic questions about your compensation, you somehow aren't focused on the right things or aren't motivated or aren't sufficiently committed. So absolutely no. I had no no envy for that one. But taking me out of this and thinking about the managerial class, which is still predominantly male in the United States, predominantly white male, I can't speak for all of them. And I get so frequently embarrassed by my fellow men in the world that I'm not prepared to say that they weren't envious of Andy Owen being you know, a tough cookie in this situation. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually asking you to enlighten me as to whether the great mass of hard case bosses out there are envious of one another. I think that there is some evidence to suggest that in this moment, bosses have been through a lot. They've managed three years of incredible uncertainty with COVID. Now the economy is slowing down. People are simply not obeying their orders to come back to the office. I think there is a certain amount of just fed up that is happening and frustration. And I got some reader emails to that effect, you know, after this call. That you see as legitimate frustration or illegitimate. I'm not going to invalidate anyone's feelings. Those feelings are valid. Not all feelings You're need to be You're being so nice. You're such a nice person, Sarah. I really upon. like how, I love how you want everyone to be validated <laughs> and you don't want to invalidate anyone. But really tell me, do you think that that's valid or not? I do not think it is effective leadership to lose your patience with employees. Let's put it that way. I think the feelings are understandable. I think that it is really difficult in moments when you are feeling extremely frustrated. As I know, I get frustrated at times. The temptation is to just let fly, to just sort of say, I've had enough. I will break through to you somehow. But that's almost never effective. That almost never works. People get defensive. They misconstrue your words because of the tone you used. I think that one of the skills of leadership is thinking about what is the goal I want? What is the outcome of this conversation? And how can I make sure that this conversation leads to that goal? I did wonder as I was watching this video and writing this column, am I being too hard on Andy Owen? Would I judge a male CEO who had sort of chastised his employee this way? But I think, to be honest, I think that I would have. I mean, we've just seen in the UK, Dominic Robb stepped down for allegations of bullying staff. There was another viral CEO video that went viral a few days later with a male CEO for the tone that he used with employees. To me, the answer is to not lower our standards for women in leadership. It's to raise our standards for men in leadership and expect everyone to lead with clarity and compassion. Well said, Sarah. I'm going to take another break right now so we can hear from a sponsor. And we're going to come back to this very fetching theme we're continuing to discuss about the workplace. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. We're back. 
Our guest today is Sarah Green Carmichael, a Bloomberg Opinion editor and columnist. And we're talking about the post-COVID workplace, which Sarah has examined in many of its different facets. And she's also written about what a mess affordable and readily available childcare is and how that's another facet of work life that's come into sharp relief in the COVID era. Let's talk a little bit about that. Educate me and, and our listeners about the hurdles that childcare presents to workers these days. Yes. Well, how much more time do we have? <laughs> I would have hoped that we had come out of COVID with a really clear understanding that affordable, accessible, available, high-quality childcare is absolutely essential to having a functioning economy. Because during those early months of COVID, when so many schools and daycares were closed, we really saw that it just our economy doesn't function without it. And yet what has happened is very quickly, a bunch of proposals from the Biden administration were scrapped. It seems like we've gone back to a mode where parents just have to figure it out for themselves. So where we are at now is basically what in an emerging market is sometimes called an institutional void. If you are doing business, say, in India, which does not have the robust sort of legal business contract system that we have in America, you have to find ways to work around that institutional void. And I think in the U.S., what we are working around is a really appalling lack of childcare or childcare that's so expensive that it's just out of reach for many, many working families. Do you have a solution in mind? Is there a good, strong role for the government here to play in terms of subsidizing affordable childcare? Is there a role here for the states to play in bringing more childcare centers online by reducing some of the ridiculous restrictions that prevent people from becoming childcare providers? Things like licensing or doing it in your home. Do you have a a little menu of must-dos to make childcare a reality? I mean, I think what's exciting here is that the situation is so bad that so many of these solutions could work and could make things slightly better. I do think there's a role for the government to play in terms of some kind of subsidy. I think if the private market, the free market were going to solve this problem, it would have been solved already because the need is there and because parents are paying hand over fist. I mean, In many, many states, the cost of daycare is higher than the cost of public college tuition. And public college tuition is something you have 18 years to save for if you're a parent. And daycare is not something that you have almost two decades to set aside money for. So I definitely think there's a role for government subsidies. I think that there is a role to look at in terms of licensing and providers. At the same time, it's really important that care be high quality. And even now with the restrictions we have in place, you will hear stories of a baby left out in a hallway or something. And that's just not acceptable. I think one area where we could actually see a lot more is from private companies. I don't love that the solution so often in America is like, oh, well, companies will offer health insurance. Companies will offer 401k plans. But this is just how we do things in the U.S. And I think that private companies, only 6% of private companies currently offer some form of on-site or near-site child care at their offices. If employers are serious about having workers come back to the office, give them a solid reason to be there, you know, provide either subsidized or free a place to put their kids. And there are corporate partners who will work with organizations to set those up so that you're not actually having to employ the daycare workers yourself. That dovetails nicely into a discussion about benefits in the workplace and also bring us back to Andy Owens and the heart of her viral video. Andy Owens is handsomely compensated. She made many millions of dollars last year in her role as the CEO of Miller Knoll. And, of course, during that video, she dumped on 
the idea of bonuses as being something her employee should aspire to during her conference call. So let's talk a little bit about pay. Mm -hmm. You've written that bosses are overlooking other forms of compensation, like benefits, in circumstances in which they say they aren't in a position to offer better pay. And childcare is obviously one of the grand kind of benefits you can get. But talk a little bit about that idea that managers in this difficult era aren't thinking about all their options if they want to motivate employees. And options that are better than saying, don't go to pity city. <laughs> right. It strikes me as odd in some ways that so many managers are sort of trying to cut back on employee flexibility. Because in survey after survey, flexibility and autonomy over when and where to work is one of the top benefits employees want, and it really doesn't cost anything to offer it. So that's one that you would think if, you know, there's a sort of cash-crunched company, they could offer that, and that would be something that would be highly valued, and it wouldn't show up as a cost in the balance sheet. Other reasons I think benefits could be helpful to companies right now is, you know, they're taxed differently. They don't go on a corporate balance sheet the same way that salaries do. You know, I had a funny and very enlightening conversation with Peter Capelli at the Wharton School about some of this stuff. And he thinks the whole way we do accounting on employee salaries is really messed up. He's like, we consider it a cost, but isn't it really an investment? Like you are investing in these people and they are doing work for your company and producing the stuff you're selling. Like, why do we consider that a cost? So I think that there's a lot of sort of rethinking here that needs to happen. And in some ways, I'd love to see a rethink of even the way we think about bonuses. You know, you mentioned Andy Owen and her sort of encouraging people to not worry about their bonuses. But, you know, we use this word bonus and we think it's like a windfall. Like, oh, it's so unexpected. I got a bonus. But in most employee compensation schemes, it's just the name that we give to this annual lump sum payment that has a clear target goal. And so hopefully it's not coming as a total surprise. So I think that in some ways our conversations around a bonus as a kind of extra are a little bit out of date. Really today, many companies, a bonus is a very clear lump sum payment that employees expect to get. And that CEOs expect to get too. Their bonuses are often much, much bigger as a portion of their compensation in part to incentivize you know, their performance. I just want to highlight the very smart, helpful thing you just said is do we think of compensation as a cost or do we think about it as an investment? And I think that's a very useful dividing line if you talk to managers and their relationship with the people who work for them. Do they think that what they're providing to those workers is a cost or an investment? And I would suspect that what I would describe as enlightened managers and our critics would call woke is it's enlightened to think about people as an investment as opposed to just a cost. And that there are all sorts of benefits you get out of that, to put politics aside, from a pure management and bottom line perspective. Yeah. And I think one benefit of paying people a salary that's generous is they can stop doing things like moonlighting. You know, a lot of companies today really want their employees to be fully committed to them. And if you're moonlighting or freelancing on the side, that's kind of seen as almost like cheating on <laughs> cheating on the company. But employees do that because they feel like they need to make more money. And so a company that can pay enough that people can just have their free time, you know, they don't need to have a side hustle. And I think that it goes back to the company because then they can also be available if there is some kind of emergency or late night assignment. They're not out driving for Uber when that email comes in. So I think it actually, there's many benefits to employees and companies to just paying a little more too. So hybrid work in the workplace has been 
the centerpiece of our talk today. So let's do some summing up here about hybrid work, which I'll add again, white-collar workers get the luxury of considering what that means in a way that blue-collar workers often don't have because they have far fewer options. Having said that, at the end of last year, you looked back in one column at what we learned about hybrid work in 2022. Tell me, what did we learn? Well, I think we learned some of the things that we've we've touched on today, that offices have to provide some clear benefit. Otherwise, people won't show up to use them. You know, one thing that's become really clear to me is that long commutes are the main obstacle keeping at least Americans from heading in. And then that's a decision that governments and cities and states have made is not to invest in better transit in infrastructure. Changing that will not be cheap or easy. I think one of my big takeaways from the last couple of years of debate around this is really that it's really hard for a company to enforce a one-size-fits-all hybrid work or FaceTime policy because what we've seen over the past couple of years is that hybrid work has been great for some groups of people and fully remote work has been really great for groups of people. You know, workers with disabilities have re-entered the workforce in huge numbers because of remote work. Working parents have really benefited from the additional flexibility to work around the sort of vagaries of daycare and school drop-off and pickup times. On the other hand, as you pointed out, younger workers, people whose jobs involve a lot of sort of FaceTime and communication would just be better suited to be in the office. I think that's especially true if you have a lot of meetings. It's fun to have in-person meetings and talk to your colleagues in person. It is not that fun to sit on Zoom all day. So I'm thinking and hoping that as we kind of go forward, hybrid arrangements will be a little bit more of a arrangement that teams or people can come up with on their own rather than a company kind of worrying that people are coming only in two days a week instead of three days a week. And then I guess the other thing that I would just throw out there is that hybrid work and remote work really shift the energy and the culture of the office to Slack and email. So I think all of us need to be much more intentional about how we use those tools. I think some bad habits were allowed to proliferate in the era before COVID and then during COVID. And I think this is the perfect time to be a little bit more strategic in how we use technology. Sarah, because this is Crash Course, we don't let guests escape the show without sharing little lessons that they've learned. And I'm curious to know what you've learned about Pity City or anything else you didn't fully understand about workplace dynamics in the pre-pandemic era. I think what I am learning is that the motivational model of the last 15 years was really about a specific time and place and economy. And when companies were competing on talent and not on capital, because interest rates were really low for a really long time, when companies were competing on talent, they really believed in this sort of company culture, hire great people and set them free and have them deeply committed to the work sort of idea. And I think what we're seeing now is what happens when the economy slows down. When you have convinced employees to buy into an ownership culture and that they need to act like owners and entrepreneurs, they're going to have some ideas on how the business should be run. They're going to have ideas on what political causes you support. They are going to have ideas on what the remote work policy should be. And so I think that this shift I'm seeing from sort of fed up executives who are sort of like, oh, my God, stop complaining. Get back to work. Don't be such a snowflake. It's a little bit like, but you spent 15 years like telling us we should act like owners. Like that's what we're doing. I think that's where a lot of this tension is coming from. And I do not know if the motivational model that I have seen for the last 15 years will persevere. And in some ways it would be healthy if it didn't. Maybe a lot of us could use some more distance from our jobs and not identify so much with them and have so much of ourselves invested in them. 
But if employees pull back from that, that's when you start to have executives worried about quiet quitting, right? So I think that there's this sort of dance playing out. We kind of all want to have it all. Employees want to have high salaries and ownership and work-life balance. And then I think in some ways, managers want to have a docile, obedient workforce that they can underpay, but who also will work around the clock. And like, we can't have all And it's really, things. really innovative and our owners and yeah, do totally. really great things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which like what's not matching up right there in that yeah. little picture. Yeah. So that's what I'm kind of learning. And that's what I'm probably going to be watching next. Sarah, we're out of time, but thank you for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. You can find Sarah Green Carmichael's columns on the Bloomberg Opinion website, and you can follow her on Twitter, at SK Green. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that it really matters whether or not managers see employees as investments or costs. And they have to be very clear-headed about what that means because the consequences are important in terms of employee gratification, in terms of achieving company goals, and in terms of a happier and more productive workplace. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now. And please leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Hendrickson, and we had editing help from Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.